Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, but strangers. <laughs> Let's read that again. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. All right, thanks, Stephen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Um, thanks for the way in which it... Uh, tells us what you are like and how we live in your world. So we pray this evening, um, speak to us and show us how we might live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Amen. Okay, well, can I ask you please to make sure you've got a Bible open in front of you at Ephesians chapter 2. Um, as well, you'll want the handout that you were given as you came in. There's a detailed outline inside, including a couple of Bible passages that are printed there to save you having to flick through your Bibles. So you need that in front of you. And you also need the memory verse card which you should see on the seats as well. Uh, well, you know when you watch a great movie and the action pauses uh, for a little while, really for a flashback to fill in a backstory. Uh, that's what Ephesians chapter 2, the second half, is all about. Um, in many ways, it's just a parallel of the first half of chapter 2. And if you look at the table that I printed there on your handout, you'll see the two halves of Ephesians chapter 2. Um, last week we saw... The way in which the first half was laid out uh, in three stages, we were dead in our sins, but were made alive in Christ, so we've been saved from something and saved for something. This week, firstly, we were formerly, we were without hope. Secondly, but now we have peace with God. And thirdly, consequently, we're being built together. Same structure in both halves, but just slightly different perspectives. Now, of course, the central character and the main focus of the Bible is Jesus, um, but Jesus doesn't just appear out of nowhere when he's born in Palestine some 2,000 years ago. Um, and because of that, it means that if you want to know God better and if you want to more fully delight in the wonder of every spiritual blessing in Christ, 
Do you notice how I slipped in two memory verses there? Some of you have been doing that, yeah? Recognise those? Um, Well, at some stage, if you want to do those things, you actually have to go back to the beginning to see how Jesus has been long anticipated. Uh, Well, last week we saw that we're saved by grace through faith for good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Um, And that uh, kind of left, I suspect, many of us thinking, okay, that's good, so what are those good works? Uh, Let's get to chapters 4 through 6 so we can get on with doing them. The thing is, Paul says that what's more important than doing good works is knowing who we are. So the most important thing for us to hear at this point is about how we relate to each other. And that's what this passage is all about. So if you look on your handout there, three points. Formerly, we were without hope. Secondly, but now we have peace. And then thirdly, uh, consequently, we're built together. And then a couple of reflections about application. Uh, Let's start at point one with formerly, we were without hope. Actually, where I want to begin tonight is with that backstory I was telling you about. Um, It's worth realising that the Ephesian Christians whom Paul is writing to Uh, Most of them were converts from pagan backgrounds. They weren't Jewish by ancestry in any way. And that's going to be relevant to us once you stop and consider what the Jewish view of race and ethnicity was like. In fact, it was very simple. Uh, See, for the Jews, it was a binary way of looking at the world. It was us or them. The Jews divided into the world, the whole world, into us Jews and everyone else, whom they called Gentiles. Of course, the mark of whether or not you were Jew or not was pretty straightforward. The mark, as you saw in that reading, was male circumcision. And, you know, like a view of the world, that's pretty binary, isn't it? Either you are or you are not, without being crude, it was pretty easy to tell if someone belonged to the Jews or not. Now, you can imagine that this kind of us and them mentality, it did cloud the way in which Jews viewed the rest of the world. We'll see that in a moment. But the most important thing is that from God's perspective, the Jews weren't any better than the Gentiles in any way. The reason he chose the Jews was simply because of his great love. And the key passage that shows this and explains this and shows us how the Old and the New Testament fit together as one continuous storyline, the key passage is the call of Abraham, the first Jew in Genesis chapter 12. So if you look on your handout there on the left-hand side, I printed the first three verses of Genesis 12. Let me read them out. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, so what Genesis 12 is saying is that when God calls Abraham, uh, he says to them that he will bless him, he will bless his descendants, and through them, all the peoples of the world will receive God's blessing. Now, once again, Genesis 12 is not suggesting that the Jews were somehow inherently good or more deserving of God's blessings than any of the other nations of the world. In fact, if you continue on in the story... All the way from Genesis through Malachi, the story of the Old Testament is in fact how terribly godless they were. In fact, you remember that phrase from last week? Dead in our transgressions and sins? That could have applied to the Jews as well. 
So what Genesis 12 is saying is that God chose Israel of his own accord simply to show her the incomparable riches of his grace. Now, the reason the Jews were to protect their community so tightly was so that they would never drift away from God's love. That explains one of the strange provisions that if you've ever read the Old Testament, you might have wondered about. Uh, It forbids the Jews, God's Old Testament people, from marrying anyone from another race or from another country. Reason for that was in case it led the Jews away from worshipping the one true God to worshipping the gods of other nations. And sadly, that's exactly what they did again and again and again. Well, there's the background. Let's see then how Paul is going to describe the Ephesian Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus, the Ephesian Gentiles who have become Christians. Uh, See what they were like before their conversion. Pick it up with me in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Paul is describing what the Christians in Ephesus who were Gentiles, he's describing what they were like before. And he has five vivid descriptions. You saw them there in verse 12. Separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's what they were like. What's really intriguing is that Paul says that they were separate from Christ. Separate from Christ. When if you think about it, surely God's Old Testament people, the Jews, were also separate from Christ. Well, what that does actually is it leads us then into verse 13. And here we see the importance of Jesus, and that's going to open up verses 14 through 18. So come with me now then to point two. But now we have peace with God. Pick it up in verse 13. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Okay, the big idea in this section is back there in verse 13. The big idea is that Gentile Christians who are now in Christ have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Now, this just mirrors what we saw last week. In the first half of Ephesians 2, we who are dead in our sins, we've been made alive in Christ. And the work of Christ is reinforced in verse 15. Did you notice there? Verse 15. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, 
and reinforced again in verse 16, we are reconciled to God through the cross. Well, if that's what Jesus has done for us, there's two amazing consequences, both of which are printed there on your handout. You can see them there. First consequence is that we can all have peace with God. We can all have peace with God. Paul's logic is pretty clear. He's saying the reason we can confidently draw near to God is because we have peace with God. You would have heard in that section, four times, in fact, he talks about peace. Verse 14, he talks about peace. Verse 15, he talks about peace. Verse 17, twice, he talks about peace, peace with God. Paul is saying that our sins aren't counted against us anymore because Jesus has borne the consequences for them at the cross. And that means there's no charge that can be levelled against God's people. So he's saying, come forward with confidence. Draw near to God with confidence. We all have peace with God. But what's really extraordinary is the second consequence. Uh, This is the game changer, I think. Point two there on your handout. We have no hostility with each other. We have peace with God, but we have no hostility with each other either. Now, as you hear me saying again and again, in the Bible, the vertical always shapes the horizontal. How God treats us, the way we relate to God, that always affects the way in which we treat each other, the way we relate to other people. And that's most vividly expressed here in verse 14. Have a look at verse 14. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. I'll read it again, verse 14. Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now you might be wondering, what's this dividing wall of hostility? Well, it's not the thing that separates us from God. That's because... Jesus, in his death, has taken away our sins. The dividing wall of hostility that Paul's referring to here is actually what separated Jew from Gentile and what kept them apart. Now, this was a problem in Ephesus. You can sense that because actually of the way in which the church in Ephesus first came about. Right from the beginning, there was conflict between Jew and Gentile. And so it's probably unsurprising that even after conversion, it was still an issue that they had to deal with. Come with me back to Acts chapter 19. I printed there on your handout to save you looking it up in your Bibles, but look down the bottom left-hand side, Acts chapter 19. This describes what happens when Paul first goes to Ephesus. And there he's involved in starting the church. Verse 8, Acts chapter 19. Paul entered the synagogue. That's the place where the Jews met. Paul entered the synagogue, and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was almost certainly a Gentile. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Okay, so you can hear with that kind of background for the way in which the church began it's likely there were still divisions even amongst the Christians depending on whether they were converted from a Jewish background or a Gentile background. And of course I gave you the illustration before about intermarriage as being one example of those kinds of divisions 
But actually, Paul, in verse 14, he's giving a much more graphic illustration when he talks about the dividing wall of hostility. So here's what he means. Have a look at the screen behind me, and you'll see a picture. Uh, this is a, you know, it's a, it's a picture trying to depict what uh, the temple at the time, this is Herod's temple, what it might have looked like. And basically, you see the very large outer area, and then right in the middle, you see the sanctuary and the inner area, and there's even a wall around that. But if you notice, about a third of the way along on each side, there is a line that runs all the way from the top to the bottom in parallel. What this was, was a barricade that was erected, that was put up um, to basically keep the Gentiles out from ever coming any closer. In fact, there were signs posted all along those barricades saying, if a Gentile crosses this, they do so on the pain of death. Now, that's the kind of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, and yet, it's the thing that Christ has destroyed in his flesh. You see, by saying not just peace with God, but no hostility with each other, Paul is insisting that the gospel is not just good use for you and for me individually, He's saying that the gospel is great news for all of us collectively as a whole. And I hope you can see what's critical about this is why. It's critical not because Gentile Christians must become like Old Testament Jews, but because all of us have become, verse 15, one new humanity. Or verse 16, we've become one body in Christ So both can be reconciled to God together at exactly the same time. Whereas, in fact, before, both Jew and Gentile were separate from God. Now, here's the thing, right? God didn't have to do it that way. God could have chosen one way to reconcile the Old Testament Jews to himself. And he could have chosen another way to reconcile the New Testament Gentiles to himself. He could have done it that way. But he doesn't. Instead, what he does first is join Jew and Gentile together as one body and then to make peace with us all. I hope you can see what a powerful way that is for God to say there can be nothing to divide Jew and Gentile Christians anymore. I might even say, if we sow division in Christ's body, then we're threatening to break his body and we're even risking our own peace with God himself. Now the thing is, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us because actually this has been God's plan all along. Right back to, that's right, Genesis 12. So look at Genesis 12 once again. The last verse, verse 3. God says to Abram, the first Jew, he says, I will bless those who bless you, whoever curses you I'll curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This has been God's plan all along, in one body to reconcile us all to himself. And I take it, actually, that's why Paul concludes this section in verse 18, the way in which he does. Look at verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 18, Ephesians chapter 2, for through Christ we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. 
Through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. In this great Trinitarian statement, it's a reminder once again that there is no other name on heaven on earth by which we can be saved except Jesus. It's a reminder that no one comes to the Father except in and through Christ. Now, what does all that mean? Well, Paul is not saying to ignore our differences or pretend that they're not real. What Paul is saying is that since the only way to have peace with God is through Christ, then actually what we have in common is far more important than anything that separates. That's why there ought be no hostility with each other. And Paul expresses this most elegantly, I think, in Galatians 3. If you have a look on your handout, on the right-hand side, I printed Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so the way in which Paul is going to finish this section then, in uh, this chapter, is actually with the positive. Not just what Christ has destroyed or torn down, but what God has wonderfully created or built up because of the cross. So come with me then, point three, consequently built together. Pick it up with with me in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 19... Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul is saying Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, they are no longer foreigners nor strangers. They are one in Christ. And he uses three images or metaphors to make this point for us, each of which are listed there for you on your handout. First image, we are all fellow citizens with God's people. Fellow citizens with God's people. You all know that we live in a world of rising nationalism. I don't need to remind you of just how important citizenship is, how important it's always been. What's remarkable is how Paul describes us, did you notice? Fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. It's a reminder that we are one body and therefore there is no hostility. We are all in this together. The second image that he uses, fellow citizens, is the first. Second, members of God's household. Members of God's household. Now, I don't know how you answer the question when someone asks you who's in your household. Generally, people talk about relatives or flatmates or pets not necessarily in that order really i suppose depending on which they like the most who's in your household it's a question asking you to describe your relationships and what paul is saying is that in this household christ jesus himself is the chief cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets they are the foundation it's a reminder that The only way we draw near to God is in and through Christ as we encounter him through the word of God. 
Uh, that's what the reference to the apostles and the prophets is talking about, I think. The New Testament apostles, the Old Testament prophets, I think they represent the word of God. And that's why I picked these particular verses, verses 19 and 20, as our memory verse. We'll come back to that at the end tonight. Uh, the metaphors that Paul is using to describe what it means for us to be one in Christ, fellow citizens, members of his household. The third and final one, a building that's becoming a holy temple in the Lord. Look at verses 21 and 22 with me. Verse 21. In Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Uh, this final metaphor takes that building imagery even further. And you notice here, it's not just talking about us being any old building, it talks about us being a temple. Now, we've already seen that Paul's alluded to Herod's temple earlier. And of course, the Ephesian Christians who are reading this letter, well, they were well familiar with the concept of a temple. They had the temple of Artemis in their city, that seven, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And both Herod's temple and, Artem and the temple of Artemis, they were spectacular creations. But they are nothing compared to this temple which God is building, this temple which is built on Christ, in which God lives by his Spirit. You see, when Paul talks about temple, he doesn't mean the physical building back in Jerusalem. That would make no sense to the Christians who lived in Ephesus. Rather, when he talks about temple, Paul is describing anywhere that God's people gather around the Word of God. Anywhere that God's people gather around the Word of God. Because there, Christ dwells amongst us richly. So remember that question, who's in your household? The answer that Paul is giving is, God is. God is the one who lives amongst us by his Spirit. Now, what does all that mean? Let me just uh, make a, a sideways observation. Uh, over the last year or so, you've heard us talk a lot about the site redevelopment. The fact that we're going to significantly transform this site. It'll involve a significant amount of time away uh, just to try and improve the facilities here. I hope you can see that the building which the Bible is interested in has very little to do with physical property. See, the building the Bible is interested in, it's the dwelling where God lives by his spirit, where Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And what that means, I think, is that all of our plans for construction and site redevelopment, they are very, very, very unimportant compared with what God, the cosmic architect, has in store. You see, he is gathering a people for himself around his word amongst whom he will live, a people who are at peace with him and who have no hostility with each other. So, next week, I am going to talk about our plans for the off-site phase. I know that some people are a little, a little bit concerned. Where will we meet for the three years whilst they're working on this site? But I trust that you can see that it doesn't actually matter very much where we will meet in that time. I mean, to be really blunt, 
we could put up a tent by the torrents and God will still be with us by his spirit as we gather around his word. He'll still be building us up and on Christ and in Christ. And so that'd be just fine too. Now, for the record, so you don't misquote me afterwards, we will look for more than just a tent by the torrents, okay? But it doesn't matter if we don't succeed. Actually, here's the thing. I was meant to give you the update on the site redevelopment this week, but actually I thought you'd rather hear about Jesus Week instead. I thought instead of hearing about meeting venues, you'd rather be encouraged by plans and prayers for seeing dead people be made alive in Christ. Well, let me finish with a couple of points of application. You'll see there on your handout. Uh, two things I want to say, and then after that we'll have question time. I forgot to mention that before, so if you have any questions about anything I've said, you'll get a chance to ask them at that point. Now, two points of application. One is pretty obvious. The other is less so, but it's equally profound. Let me start with the, the more obvious one. Because we are now one in Christ, it affects how we welcome others. It affects how we welcome others. Remember I said at the start that most of us probably just want Paul to tell us what the good works are that God has prepared in advance for us to do? Come on, Paul, just tell us what they are so we can get on with doing them. Actually, what's more important to Paul is not what we do, but who we are and who we are together. You'll see there's a picture on the screen behind me. Um, I saw this uh, this week. Um, it was a, an ad for Ancestry.com. Some of you know about it. It's a tool you can use to trace your lineage and try and find out where you come from. What grabbed me is the question, are you who you think you are? Are you who you think you are? Well, to borrow from Galatians 3, we are all one in Christ. What does it look like in practice? Well, let me ask you, how do you introduce yourself if you're called upon to do so? How do you introduce yourself? Say who you are, who you think you are. Uh, usually we introduce ourselves in vocational terms. You know, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher, I'm a student. Uh, sometimes we introduce ourselves in relational terms. I'm a parent, a husband, a child, a brother. If the occasion is appropriate, we might introduce ourselves in racial or ethnic terms. I'm Australian. I'm Chinese. In my case, I'm an Australian-born Chinese. We even come up with a new designation, an ABC. The thing is, if you're introducing yourself relationally, the right answer is, I'm a child of God. I'm a member of his household. I am part of his holy temple. And that's an answer not just for me, and not just for you, that's the answer for all of us. And so because of that, we welcome everyone because we want everyone to belong to this. We welcome everyone, even though it's not always easy. It's not always instinctive. We can still be tribal at times. But we welcome everyone because how we relate to each other 
reflects our understanding of how we relate to God. Uh, This year, we've talked a lot in our church about how we long to be a place that better reflects the whole family of God across every age and stage, how we want to become more genuinely intergenerational. To that wonderful desire, I want to add, we ought to reflect every race, every nationality, every colour. That is not just intergenerational, we ought to be interracial. I'm not calling for the abolition of race, rather for the uniting of every tribe, language and tongue. Because being in Christ matters even more. There's two reasons why. The first is, well, that's why Jesus gave his life. So I take it it means something to him. But the other reason is because this is what we will be doing in eternity. In eternity, we will be gathering with people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every tongue. We will be gathered around the throne, worshipping Jesus. So we probably should get started now. Now, this is a magnificent aspirational goal. I do realise that it's a very confronting diagnostic. Let me ask you. How do you feel about foreigners in church? As I said last week, church ought to be the most inclusive and diverse community in our country. I understand it can be hard. It's complicated when it comes to communication, if nothing else. Sometimes we do choose to do things slightly separately so that we might better reach the lost. A good example is the fact that this morning at 10.30 we ran two services simultaneously in different buildings. One in here for English, uh, in English, one next door in Mandarin. Part of the reason is because no one wants to hear me try to speak Mandarin. So at times we do separate, but our dream is that our church would be genuinely interracial. So I ask you, who do you look to sit next to during church? Or who do you gravitate towards after it finishes? People who look like you because it's more comfortable? Or people who look different, even if it's not as easy? I want to say I know that there is no one in our church who would ever be intentionally or deliberately racist. I know that. But functionally and practically, might our actions suggest otherwise? First application, how we welcome others. Secondly, very briefly, how we forgive each other. How we forgive each other. Because... Despite what I've just said, we will wrong each other. Now, we won't do it intentionally or deliberately, but we will wrong each other accidentally and inevitably. And when we wrong each other, if it were not for the fact that we are one body in Christ, that would raise a dividing wall of hostility between us. That's what happens in our society. When people are wronged, You don't forgive. So, 
Here's where I'm going to finish. It's with a quote from the book that is tonight's recommended reading. As I do each week, try to give you some things to uh, help stretch you beyond what we can do on a Sunday. Uh, the book is called Life Together. It's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he's the German theologian who was martyred by the Nazis in the closing days of World War II. Uh, his book, Life Together, is just a brilliant insight into what church family is meant to be like. Have a listen. Follow along with me. Is not what has been given us enough, brothers and sisters, who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessings of God's grace? Is the divine gift of Christian fellowship anything less than this, any day, even the most difficult and distressing day? See, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that when someone in church wrongs you, it's actually something to give thanks to God for. Because in that moment, both of you are reminded that the only way in which we are one is because of the forgiveness that God has shown us in Christ. And it's the same when you wrong someone else, that actually in that moment, they have the opportunity to remind you that both of us are forgiven in Christ and therefore we are one. Now, earlier, I invited you, if you're new or newish amongst us, to come to belong, to come and see what it would mean to belong to this church. This is the reason why. Because this is what we are aspiring to, to be a place where God's grace and mercy shapes everything about the way in which we live. Let me pray, and then for a couple of minutes, we'll take any questions. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that because of his death, we have peace with you and no hostility with each other. So we ask, help us to be a people who welcome others and who forgive each other deeply from the heart, just as you have forgiven us. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.